The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Dr. David Haskell, Professor of Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of the South, and he's the author of two books, The Forest Unseen, and his new book, The Songs of Trees. Sam Moe interviews Dr. Haskell in in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Dr. Haskell, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, I tell you what, that remains to be seen. (laughs) Because I read the, the interview, I read the books, and I am fascinated by trees, but in a way that is a little quirky. So I'm hoping, actually, personally, what I'm hoping to get out of this is is a deepening of why trees are so why trees, I guess, and why why are you attracted to trees? And and I'm also drawn to trees, but I want to hear, first of all, what is it about trees that just caused you to write two books about it? What what's the attraction? Well, the, your quirkiness, I think, is is a is a universal in some ways. We all have our own particular relationship to trees, or to the to the products of trees, wood, and and so forth. And so, as I've traveled, uh, talking about the book, and also for the research that went into this book, I went to a dozen trees around the world uh, to to try to understand their lives, their ecology, and a lot of that ecology, a lot of that life comes from the trees' relationships with people and people's relationships with trees. And so the universal is we all have our own quirky ways of interacting with, with trees, but they manifest in, in very, very different ways. Uh, so, so we're all we're deeply bonded to trees, but that, that, the variegations of that uh, relationship are uh, extraordinarily diverse. So what's so, brought yeah, me to trees yeah. is, you know, partly... It was a sensory experience. I, I find listening to trees and smelling trees and attending to the to the changes in the quality of light in trees just extraordinarily enriching on an aesthetic uh, level. And then behind those sensory impressions are all kinds of fascinating stories, particularly stories about interconnection, about how a, 
A tree's life comes from connection. In fact, the tree, is, I argue, is made from connections. And people are wrapped up in, in those connections. And the tree, in a way, then becomes a, an example. Uh, it shows us the role of mutual dependence and relationship in a way that, that illuminates our own lives uh, through an example of a creature that in many ways is, a, is an other. So that uh, in that way, in, in engaging and in, in interacting with the tree, we come to understand ourselves a little bit at, at a biological, physiological, evolutionary, social level. So, you know, I have a, well, right now he's almost two years old, two-year-old grandson. And from early on in his life, though his life is not that long, we always went out in the front of a house because he used to live next door to us. And we just played with this giant maple tree and he loved just hugging the bark and smelling the tree. He, he didn't know what a tree was. I mean, I taught him the word, but you know, he, he didn't know the concept tree, but he, but he knew, and, and it was different than his relationship to bushes and other things. He knew this was, and I know I romanticizing, he knew this was a friend. Mm-hmm. And, and I have this sense that when people allow themselves to be childlike, when we allow ourselves to play, we recognize trees as more than neighbors, I mean, as, as friends. But I'm not exactly sure what that means, though I want to explore a little bit more with yeah. you. What, what, how does that, what's your reaction to that? Um, well, I, you know, I think the, the word friend is one that I have used many times as well. And I think that friendship, for example, in, in a human friendship between two people, that often you, you first meet the person and, and maybe have some rather deep and interesting conversations that lead you to, to see that person quite, quite clearly. But then there are years and years of lots and lots of interactions, each one of which is seemingly quite insignificant. And yet, over the years, they build up into this deep understanding of, of the other person. And I think we can do that with other species as well. Of course, the conversation is very different. We speak you know, trees are speaking a language that is very different from ours. It's a chemical language. It's a physiological language rather than a, um, a, a language that comes through um, acoustically, mostly. Um, but in interacting with trees over and over, over the years, I've come to regard it as a way of forming a friendship, an intellectual and an emotional and a sensory bond with the tree. And Indeed, kids really do have that sense right from the get-go. It doesn't take them years. Is that this is a being that I could befriend, and partly because the being is, in many ways, non-threatening. It's large. It's fun to to, to uh, interact with. You know, piles of dry leaves in the fall, and you can climb into the limbs. There are all sorts of sensory experiences that are very welcoming there. And then, as as we mature that relationship, we come to see that trees, in fact, are at the center of so many vital things in our lives. I mean, the air we breathe, of course, half of the oxygen in that air is coming from trees, but also human culture. What mediates human culture? The written word. The written word comes to us with the help of trees, trees that we, we have turned into paper. Music, when we're listening to music, what are we listening to? We're listening to vibrations in wood. That are, so that the ecology, the particularity of a, of a tree growing in, a, in a one spot on the earth combines with the composers and a musician's artistry. And that's what we hear. We hear the ecology of the tree in our ears as well as the, the artistry of 
with the musicians. Even so, right. Go, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go, go ahead. I'm, I'm I mean, sure. you're right to the get go. What, what it means to be human? Well, being human is being a social creature and gathering with others and having conversations that, that roam into the realms of the imagination. And, and what helps us do that? And where did that first arise in evolutionary time? Oh, it arose around campfires. So as we burned wood, we actually annealed human culture. We became human in relation to trees. And it's still the case if you hear the crackle of a campfire, your blood pressure drops, and the conversation often then roves off into, into imaginative realms and uh, away from the everyday. So what do you think? I guess you just mentioned this evolutionary uh, notion here, and my sense is, is that we emerged from the trees. I don't mean from the bark and the wood. I mean, mm -hmm. we were living in trees. And then, you know, as, as we became homo sapiens, we're, we're moving away from living in the trees, but we still live among the trees. Is the, do you think there's some, oh, I don't know, cellular memory of our, our original home, which was up in those branches? Um, absolutely, there's a memory of that in the fossil, the fossil evidence. Uh, supports exactly what the scenario that you just painted that our ancestors the the uh, great apes were indeed tree and many of our great ape cousins still are tree dwelling creatures and then before we evolved before we came homo sapiens i mean um, several million years before we became homo sapiens our ancestors moved from dense forest into more open savannas so we were living in grasslands that were dotted with trees and you think about when we take on landscapes and control them. What do we want to create? What is the human sense of aesthetics on the landscape? Well, it's a savanna. It's an open grassy area with, with large trees dotted within it. Think of a you know, fancy golf course or a country club. That's the aesthetic that when people have a lot of power and money, they recreate. And in doing so, they're echoing the uh, habitat preferences of our ancestors. Well, that's ironic, given the fact that golf courses are oftentimes such a detriment to the environment. Yes, and you know, and that was one of the in my first book, The Forest Unseen. That was one of the in one of the chapters, the contrast between the uh, the multi-species diverse ecology of the golf course and the mono—excuse me—the the, multi-species diverse ecology of the forest and then the monoculture of the golf course is, is very striking but we are recreating habitat conditions that that we evolved in for millions of years if we were muskrats we'd be creating much more swamps if we were hermit thrushes we would want dense woodlands that's their preferred habitat but our habitat is more of an open savanna so we do indeed have that memory in us and that memory though is, is a living memory because our, so much of our culture uh, is still mediated in relationship with trees and forests. Without them, we have we would have no being, and we have no future if we don't have forests on this planet. Right, right, right. Well, I, and I want to come to that in a sec, but I guess I want to get your response to this. So much of dystopian science fiction shows us an Earth that is treeless. You know, mm -hmm. it's just these vast urban glass and steel fantasies. Uh, what happens, do you think, 
when we lose, and forget the, the biological and the fact that we can't breathe and we all die, but <laughs> when, what, let's assume we can, we can work with that somehow. But what happens psychologically and spiritually to us, and this, obviously I'm asking for speculation on your part, but what do you think happens to us psychologically and spiritually when we lose uh, our, our intimacy with trees? Yes, and we, and we don't have to speculate here. We have run an unwitting experiment of that kind by creating neighborhoods that, say, within cities, some neighborhoods are still quite leafy. I mean, 20% of New York City is covered with tree canopy still. But that tree canopy is concentrated in some neighborhoods, and whereas other neighborhoods have almost no trees in them. And there are well-known health effects, uh, psychological health effects. People um, uh, have more psychological difficulties when they're away from, from trees. And there are also effects on the health of our lungs. There are higher rates of asthma and other lung problems because the trees aren't there to clean the air. So, so we know that our relationship with trees is in fact very important because we have done an unfortunate experiment which has created treeless areas. And we also lose some of the sensory experience of the world. Our eyes need some green. Our ears need the sound of wind moving through vegetation. Our mouths need to taste the tang on the air as the seasons change and a lot of that tang is coming from the changes in vegetation. When we lose that, we're a species that has been removed from its habitat. And like a, a species removed uh, and, say, put in, a, in an entirely uh, other continent, other habitat, like any species, say, put in a zoo, uh, we start to experience psychological distress from that. So some of the more interesting conservation projects these days now, I think, are involving the question of how do we live together with trees in, in urban areas. And, of course, urban areas are very efficient in their use of natural resources by concentrating people in one place. In urban areas, how can we ensure that everybody has some trees, some parkland within a few minutes walk of where they live? And I think that's a, that's a goal that's ambitious, but it's one that can be achieved. For example, the Trust for Public Land is, has launched a campaign to make sure that uh, everyone lives within 10 minutes of, of a, a 10 minutes walk of a, of a park area, even in the middle of cities. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. There's a architect, Paulo Solari, who's famous for bells, the Solari bells, but he, he was a visionary architect and he imagined in some of his visionary cities, he never built them, he, he drew them, uh, that we would live in this sort of diamond-shaped thing, two pyramids uh, inverted and stacked on top of each other. We'd live in the high and the upper pyramid We'd work in the lower pyramid and the pyramid would be raised up on stilts so that all around us was, you know, uncultivated land. So that mm. all you had to do is take the elevator down and you're out in, you know, a beautiful park land. Right, with trees right. And, and that, that's how he, we had to lift the human up a little bit into the sky and let the earth go green again. 
<laughs> yeah, I you know I actually I think I mean I think it's a beautiful vision. I also think that um, embedded within that is a notion that in order for the earth to be green and beautiful, we need to remove humans from it. And I I, I very much disagree with that. I think one of the problems we face is that kind of duality mm. and thinking that we somehow don't belong in nature anymore and that nature is defiled by our presence. Instead, I think we see, no, we are part of the diversity of life and we can live in productive and beautiful relationship within that community. We don't need to separate ourselves from it. Now, that, that notion of belonging could also involve living in places such as beautiful architectural creations is the one you, you just described. But the, the, the sort of undercurrent there of separation is one that is one of the themes in the Songs of Trees is what would it be to imagine that we actually really belong here on this earth? We're not wayfaring strangers passing off to somewhere else. We need to care for this place now and here. What does it mean to be a fully belonging, ecological, and ethical creature. I think that's one of the big challenges that humanity faces is that primarily in the, well, it's certainly in the West where our religious traditions tended to follow the chapter one in Genesis where people basically mm -hmm. are plopped on a fully functioning earth simply to dominate it as opposed mm -hmm. to chapter two where we come out of the earth itself to be uh, in service to, to the creativity of, of nature. But I, I want to pick up two other books, not not yours, and and see if we can if I can get your response to them in the mm -hmm. eight or so minutes that we have left. The first one <clears throat> is Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. Now, are you are you familiar with this book? Yes, yeah. So so I hate this book. Mm -hmm. uh, I I really love Shel Silverstein. This book is problematic. I've heard yep. that it's supposed to be left as a problem, and people can read it in different ways, but. So many people see the tr this giving tree, which is depicted as a fem as female, mm -hmm. uh, as just this selfless, giving, wonderful. Isn't it great? She never gives up on the boy who becomes a man who just exploits her throughout her life. And it seems to me, and I have a feeling now you're going to agree with me, that this supposed fable about generosity and selflessness is actually a parable of greed and endless taking and that the the man in the giving tree is symbolic of a certain kind of humanity who just sees the tree as an object to be exploited so is that do you read the book similarly or am i yes i mean it's and of course it's very gendered as well um oh yeah nature is fem the, the tree is feminine the boy is obviously masculine yeah and the notion that that um giving ourselves up um to abuse is something that uh, should be lauded. I think it's deeply problematic. I mean, of course, there are many different forms of of physical and psychological abuse in the human community, and teaching people that they need to take that and they need to keep giving, keep giving. I think is an appalling lesson to teach others. Now, if if we read the book in a slightly different way and and perhaps imagine what I think isn't there, imagine a notion of reciprocity, then. Giving, indeed. I mean, there are things that I can provide to a relationship, say, with a tree or another person that the tree or the other person can't reciprocate back. And there's, there's a mutualism there. And indeed, some of that is self-sacrificial. But it's understood that we're in this together right. uh, rather than in a, in a purely exploitative 
uh, well, there is relationships. The right. other thing that's going on there is, of course, it's not that book is not about trees at all. No, it's about <laughs> humans projecting human right. fables and narratives onto trees, which is part of what makes trees so wonderful. Is we see so many different things in them, we see ourselves reflected back in so many ways. So, so let's take a different book which gives a very different understanding of trees. And that's the section, is, and it's very short. I'm not going to read it, but it's a very short section in Martin Buber's I and Now, his meditation on a tree. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Uh, well, I, know, I mean, I'm familiar with the notion of I and Now. But. So it, here's, here's the idea. He says he's, he's, puts, he's contemplating a tree. He's looking at a tree. And he starts with a scientific analysis of, analysis of the tree. He says he can reduce it in his mind to purely physics, what he calls a pure relationship between numbers. But then he says, you can go beyond that without abandoning everything science can tell us about trees. He says, you can begin to see the tree as what he calls a thou, a unique, precious manifesting of reality with a capital R. You can call it Mm -hmm. God. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But this tree becomes uh, a unique being with whom he is in relation. And, and this is the, the interesting thing. I want to get your response to that. He says, this is not a play of your imagination. It's not romanticizing the tree. It's not a fantasy about tree spirits. He says it's an encounter with the tree itself because the tree itself includes and transcends science. It's a meeting that he's talking about of two beings, each unique, but both manifesting uh, both being manifestations of this singular reality. Mm-hmm. When you go out in the forest, when you meet a tree and have this contemplation, I mean, you know a lot about the trees from, you know, the biological uh, approach. And, and I mean, you're a professor of biology and environmental science. You've got the science. What's it like if, if, if I'm not presuming something that doesn't happen to you, but what's it like when you meet the tree as a unique, sacred, maybe even divine other. I would so I mean, I guess I would extend that a little bit and say it's not so much uh, a meeting of two beings. It's a meeting of two living communities that my body. And in fact, even my mind is not composed just of humans. It's, it's human cells and bacterial cells and fungal cells, all the things that go up to make my body. We now know that the human body cannot function without relationship with our microbiota. The same thing with a tree. Take a single leaf from a tree. There are dozens of species of bacteria, dozens of species of fungi living inside that leaf that give the leaf its essential character and function. If you take them away, the leaf dies. So the tree is a living community. So what you have here is is two already great interrelating communities coming and and interconnecting at an even deeper level. So it's a meeting of communities rather than a meeting of selves. And mm. I think that that's one thing we're learning from biology at many different levels is, is that the world is not made of different selves, of atoms. It's made from a set of relationships. This is true in genetics and physiology and microbiology. We are living because of relationships. So indeed, that connection with the tree gets to the very essence, the very foundation of life, and that is forming a connection, forming a relationship, because that is what life is made from. Wow. 
I, I would love to continue the conversation, but we are out of time. And that is actually a fantastic place to end. Really, really interesting. I mean, you can hear not just you know, your genius, but your passion for this. And it's, it's really quite moving. Our guest Thank today you, was, you're welcome. Our guest today was Dr. David Haskell. He is a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South. He's the author of The Forest Unseen and The Song of Trees. You can learn more about his work at dghaskell.com. And an interview with him is, uh, appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. David, thank you so much for being with thank us on you, Essential Conversations. Wonderful. It was fascinating. Thanks. Thank you. It was wonderful to be with you. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness with yogis from around the world. And do so in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Log into spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.